Hello and welcome to the Seacoast Vineyard Podcast. We're so glad you've joined us online. For daily encouragement, events, service times, and more, check us out on social media. And now, this week's message. You may have a seat. I am so excited this morning um, for a couple of reasons. Both of them revolve around two people that you're going to get to meet. In a second, Seth is going to come up and, and he's going to teach us from God's Word and we're, you're going to be super blessed through that. Seth is a, a dear friend. Yeah, you can, you can clap for... <laughs> Seth is a good friend who, who moved here from Seattle. He will tell you his story in just a moment. But before we get to that... We're also excited because um, we have the opportunity to allow you to meet someone who's become real dear to our hearts. A couple of months ago, Christy and I had the opportunity to sit in on a breakfast meeting where we got to meet a beautiful young lady named Nyasia. Um, and Nyasia is here with us this morning. Nyasia, would you join me on stage with her? You guys can, yeah, you can clap for her. <laughs> we said in the first service, she was like, we were like, man, they're clapping and they don't even know you yet, but they're, they're super supportive. Like really, I mean, they're a great bunch. Um, what's so cool about getting to meet Niasia this morning is that um, we are going to get to partner with Habitat for Humanity in building her a house in Conway, which isn't that cool? We're really excited about that. We wanted you guys to get to meet her so that you could know her and see her. And, and she works right around the corner. She said, I live right around the corner. She told me a minute ago, she was like, I could come to the first service even on the Sundays I got to work. So um, we're not going to hold you to that. Like, I, maybe I shouldn't have said that in front of everybody because now, <laughs> now when they don't see you, they're going to be like, where's that? I'm just kidding. If you want to meet Nyasia after the service this morning, you can find her at the outreach kiosk on your way out. Um, just briefly, what I wanted to share is, is uh, when we went to that meeting, we, we found out more information from Habitat. Rachel from Habitat is here this morning as well. We found out how to partner with Habitat and building a home. And there were these different rungs, right, of, of, of involvement. And we were like, give us that top rung, right? So um, we're so excited about that. What's cool is that we pledged that amount, but it doesn't have to just be that. If you guys want to give towards specifically building this house, um, you can do that. This one, when, you, when you give, um, however you do that, whether it's uh, writing a check. You see, I don't handle the money in our house. Um, I'm like, are those still a thing? Those are still a thing, right? You know, um, if you use a credit card, they get that machine out. Um, I'm joking. Some of you guys don't even get that joke. Um, you can indicate um, just that it's for Habitat, or you can write in Asia, however you want to do that. And then, if you want to be hands-on, which we're praying that you will, if you want to actually build the house, we have two work days available, one in July and one in August. We need 10 people at each of those, shorter um, uh, groups, uh, smaller groups, because guys like me who can't handle sharp objects, um, we, we, it needs a lot of supervision. So we need 10 people per date. You can find those in your app. Um, you just go into there, into the signups, and you can register. You can be a part of that. And we've spaced them out like that so that the group that goes in August will be able to see the progress that's been made since July. And um, we're super excited about that. So two ways that you can be involved. Um, and we want to take this opportunity to pray over you, Niasia, real quick. And then Jay's going to come up and finish the announcements because I can't be trusted to do that. All right. Um, if you will, stick your hand out. Let's just pray over Niasia. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord Jesus, thank you for our sister. Thanks for what you're doing in her life. Uh, we thank you for her two precious sons. And uh, we can't wait to see how you use this home um, to continue to pour out blessings on them. Thank you for the blessing of us getting to see what you're doing and be a part of that. Lord, we pray your richest blessings over her. We pray um, as she's a part of our family, God, we pray that, um, that you use this church to, to just let her feel your love. Um, and let her feel your closeness to her. Jesus, we, um, we thank you. We thank you for all of your blessings. And uh, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. 
Yeah, oh, yeah, you can say sorry. I, I didn't know if you wanted. Okay. All right. Um, good morning. I just want to uh, thank the Lord, first of all, for allowing me to be here in this opportunity. And I just want to thank you guys for just welcoming, welcoming me into your home. Um, it definitely feels like family here. And I just want to thank you guys um, for donating your heart or money and time. I can't wait to see you guys. Uh, <laughs> and I just want to thank you guys so much, and I appreciate it, because without you guys, none of this would be possible. So just thank you. <laughs> Hey, thanks for being here, Niaja. Thank you. Okay, so Vine Kids, Miss Jennifer has the pool noodle. That is our K through fourth grade. Yeah, you can go right back there. Yeah. Oh, you want to give towards the, okay. You can use that mailbox right between the wall doors, Keaton, right there, that mailbox. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we're already at the next level, right? I love that little guy. Okay, so ladies, if tables, that is happening after second service. That is, ladies, you all get together. If you haven't signed up, there's still plenty of space. There's plenty of food. They've gotten enough. So it's going to meet right out back, I think, under the canopy. So you'll be in the shade. It'll be a pretty afternoon. Um, so that's happening right after this service. Don't miss out. You can just head out back after the service. And that's for the ladies. Um, so there's two events that are church-wide events. And just to make it clear, um, the big air trampoline park that's coming up on the 20th is not just for the children. It is for the entire church. We're going to be adults, teenagers, children, everybody there. It's going to be so much fun. Plan to come out. One little thing that if you decide to jump, you sign the waiver. So... <laughs> But no, if you're not jumping, but you want to come hang out with us, we've rented the place from 7 to 9 on the 20th. So come hang out. It's going to be a church-wide event. If you would like to jump, please register on the Church Center app, okay? So, so here's, here's how that works out. If you're registering your child, but you don't plan to jump, just register for one, your child, and then show up with them and hang out. See how I'm you explain? You don't need to pay just to come and hang out with us is why I'm trying to get to. Okay, so also Myrtle Beach Pelicans baseball game is going to be August 5th, yes. And so you guys, we're going to do the picnic provided by the park right before the... The, before the game at 6, the gates open at 6, and then the game's at 7, and we'll all be together. We have an area that we've reserved for us as a church, and then there's um, fireworks following. Okay, so plan to join us August 5th. You can sign up on the Church Center app as well. And then I think, oh, and since a lot of you have youth that are on the other end of the building, just a reminder, check your email. We sent out, Tommy sent out an um, update of schedule for the summer. If you haven't seen that yet, it's in your email inbox. Find it. All right? Okay, cool. So we've come to a time in our service where we give our tithes and offerings. Like, yeah, like the little guy was you know, trying to give. Okay, so ideal way to do that is if you have it, there's a box back there between the um, doors. You could drop it in there. If the buckets uh, move by too quickly, we're going to do that here just in a moment. Or you can text 84321 down in the message, put a number amount, or use the church center app. Um, yeah, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you're doing here among us. Thank you that we get to gather like this and just constantly hear you, your movements and see what you've done among us. God, we don't take it lightly. We ask that you continue to move here, that you would show yourself faithful and strong here, that you would change Myrtle Beach, this state, this world, through the faithfulness of your people. God, we long for you to do beautiful things with the offerings that we give. We pause in response to all you've done and just say, God, you're worthy, and we give. Amen. Okay, so as the buckets are going by, I have the opportunity and the privilege to introduce you to Seth Clemens. If y'all welcome Seth to the stage here. 
The first service, I, I stepped and I said, man, it's been over a year. And Seth's like, oh, no, no, it hasn't been a year yet. So I was like, oh, man. But the reason is because you found us online before you ever landed here on Facebook, quickly became a part of the community and the services and communicating. And then your family ended up relocating here. You joined the worship team. Uh, man, we're excited to hear from you. I um, sat in for the first service, and I'm excited for you guys to hear a part of Seth's story, but then also the work God's given you. Excellent. Welcome. Thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning. So, when I was 13 years old, my dad got me a book called Confessions of a Stockbroker. <laughs> I read it, and it changed my life. It suddenly gave me direction, focus. I knew exactly what I was going to be. I became enamored with the stock market and with corporate America. So at uh, the age of 14, with my own mon- my paper route money, I started my own subscription to Fortune Magazine. <laughs> How many of you are familiar with Fortune Magazine? Yeah. All right. So I used to read it religiously cover to cover every month, right? And I would, you know, I'd collect, like I knew the CEOs of major corporations, like other kids knew, like collected baseball cards. <laughs> and I would walk around with Fortune and I would say, you know, unabashedly, like, absolutely in total belief, someday you're going to see my picture on the front of one of these. That's what I'm going to do. It was a lot of ambition for someone who liked to skip school, you know. Um, <laughs> but I didn't, you know, I didn't let the, the details, you know. Uh, no, it's really interesting. So I say that because uh, it was in my, uh, you know, 20s, then after college, right, that I, I remember I you know, as I'm getting into corporate America, I'm trying to live the life that I want to live. I remember one time, I really, I mean, I played video games like crazy. It's, it's kind of crazy because I haven't touched a console in years. But at one time, the Xbox was my life. And I, meant, I went, oh man, if I could have one job that I wanted, it would be at Microsoft managing the Xbox. So I went to Microsoft, found the job description. It was like, I read it and I was just drooling. I was like, oh man, that, that's me. Like, that's my pathway. And uh, I, you know, I tried to apply, you know, they didn't even respond, but I had the job description, right? Of everything that was on there that was for me. And I was like, that's, and I dedicated my life to that. I went to the job description. I was like, you have to know this software. I learned that software. You have to have this, this certification. I learned those certifications, right? And I, I did all those things. A few years later, that same job became available again. I applied this time I got an interview, they hired me and I was like, I've arrived. I am just in time to launch the Xbox 360, part of the Xbox One launch. I did jump to Nintendo for the Switch, but then back to Microsoft again. Um, Worked at Amazon. So I was, this was the whole of my identity and life, right? And I was like, I'm really good at it. You know, some people hate the corporate jungle, right? I just, I navigate it really well. I know the corporate speak, right? Knowing how to get promoted and network and do all those things. Everything was moving along swimmingly just fine. All of that kind of got disrupted when we went to the wrong church. Um, (laughs) Yeah, we went to, it was called Adventure Church. And um, I remember I showed up and it was the first men's night that I had been to. Right, and it's a very active men's ministry, right? And there was like, I don't know, like 30, 40 guys who were just totally engaged and involved. I remember a bunch of them came up on my first night. They were to meet me and they're like, hey, who are you? Like, what do you do? And I'm like, hey, my name is Seth. I do Xbox, right? And I was like, Xbox, Xbox, right? And I just like, just talked all about my job and what I did and like that. And I was like, great, so what do you guys do? And then one by one, this was their answer. One of them said like, oh, well, I'm a shepherd of men. I pastor guys, this is what God's been doing in my life. So, you know, someone else would tell me like, oh yeah, this is, you know, I've been working on translating a book, right, to, as part of a ministry to go to another country where we're doing a mission. Like, story after story, not a single one of them mentioned where they made their money from. Not a single one mentioned what their career was. Every single one mentioned the identity in Christ that God had given them and the ministry and mission they were on. It was the first time in my life where I went, I hate my answer. <laughs> it's like, can I have a redo? Um, and then it was weird because I remember sitting down and I was like, okay, if I didn't mention Xbox, I don't know what it would be. I don't have a fallback. I don't have an answer like they do. Um, I remember going through men's ministry, I, 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 would, uh, I met a kid, well, he looked like a kid, because, <laughs> uh, you know, he's, he was like, 
he had his hat on backwards, and he looked like he was 14, and I was like, that's really cool that, you know, you got a, you know, young high schooler come into men's ministry, and like, so I said hi, and he's like, he goes, oh, my name's BJ, I'm the youth pastor here, I'm like, okay, that makes sense, <laughs> right, but BJ and I would become, we still are best friends, um, and I remember, um, uh, through that year, right, I was just really affected by these men. Because I got to learn what life really looked like being a man who followed the heart of God. And they displayed for me stuff that I had never known. God to me to that point in my life had been this distant figure, a, a force in the universe that opened and closed doors. Right? And that was about the extent of my relationship. And I would pray and be like, hey, God, if you want me to do this, open the door, close the door. Anyone else have that familiarity, that kind of relationship? Right? But that was not these men. These men, they prayed to God, they prayed to God in the spirit like they knew him. And then, like the spirit knew them on a first-name basis. And they would read scripture like God was speaking to them through scripture. And they would all have journals. And they would journal down praying to God as if God would answer them back and speak to them. I became jealous that kind of relationship. I remember one night, it was about midnight, and um, I had this epiphany, and I, I called BJ, and I was like, <sighs> BJ, I felt like right now, if you told me that, you know, Seth, can you go run a billion-dollar company, I'd be like, sure, sure, I can do that. And then, if you asked me if I could run a Bible study, I would say, that's too much responsibility. And I don't know how to do anything else than what I do, but I want to learn. And he was like, I'd love to teach you. <laughs> you know, and um, he said, well, why don't we sit down and I'll show you what it looks like to live a life of ministry, a life of mission. I was like, great. What are you doing right now? <laughs> <laughs> so we went out like one in the morning to Denny's, right, spent the night, and I was just, just, I just, my heart just changed and melted. And at the end of the night, he was like, why don't you join me in youth ministry? I was like, oh. Is there another option? Because I really didn't like middle school or high school the first time. Um, and he was like, no, it's okay, it's okay. You know, you just, you know, sit in the, you could sit in the back as much as you want, right? And then, but man, those kids adopted me, right? We did, we did youth ministry for like six years together. And I will tell you one thing, if you want your heart to be reawakened and come alive again, then work with kids in children's ministry. Because man, uh, they just put us to shame with how vulnerable and willing they are to change and discard the broken things of the past and accept this new identity in Christ. And they changed me so much because I realized how much brokenness right, and false teaching and learnings that I had built my life on doing youth ministry. There's one in particular, which is I had always had this belief that the woundings that we have as a children, if they're bad enough, that you never really get healed from them, right? It's, I mean, you learn how to get along, right? You have a limp. You're doing pretty good, right? You're not complaining about it, but, you know, you'll all, there's just some things you don't come back from. And then doing youth ministry, I would get here to hear the, the stories of some of these kids and some of the physical abuse that they'd been through sexual abuse, trauma. And I was like, good luck with that because that's going to haunt you for the rest of your days. But that was not how they were. They had had a relationship with God where those things had been healed so fully that they wore those like scars, like badges of pride. Those scars were like standing stones to the Lord to tell the world to say, yes, this is what I experienced, but let me tell you the power of my God. The power of my God is when he makes something good, he makes it all the way good. The scripture tells us, right, that the Lord can use all things for the good of those who love him according to his purpose. That was something that I had to reconcile. I was in cognitive dissonance because I didn't really believe that. And then suddenly that got presented to me and I was like, which of these am I going to accept? The fact that you always carry a wound, that you always have a limp, or that the God can use everything in order to bless your life. He can use all things for good, even things that were meant to destroy you. He can make good. In such a way, so holy, that you won't even ever throw it away. In fact, you won't even wish that you hadn't experienced it. So, have you ever had that thing in your life that was so terrible that you can't imagine, and you'd spent years of your life wishing that it had never happened, and suddenly you find yourself in a position of going, I would never give that thing up, because that thing, I don't even know who I would be today without it. It only drove me further into the arms of Christ because I experienced it. 
God has made it that good. At the height of this kind of my youth ministry, like I was, you know, Tommy had been talking about, I think last week, right, that, you know, you don't boast in yourself, but you only boast in the Lord. I was boasting in the Lord because I just felt like I was seeing miracles on a weekly basis. And you ever, you're, you ever in that stage of your walk, right, where you just, you just feel yourself talking about the Lord and miracles and stuff like, just like at the front of your lips and like everything is an opportunity. I wish I was like that right now, right? But, you know, it's this kind of phase in my life where sometimes you're like, it's just so real. It's so real and I'm so on fire. It's just right there. And then there's other times where it's, it's, it's a little more muted. It's like I'm looking at my spiritual life through a cloudy door. But at the height, I was at Amazon, corporate Amazon, downtown Seattle, right? Not a more miserable, darker, godless place than you can imagine. <laughs> the average tenure at Amazon corporate is about 20 months. In other words, and they take all of these bright, young, ambitious kids who all have their MBA from Stanford and Harvard and Yale, and they come, and these are the top 1% of 1%, and they go and just burn themselves out. And, and 20 months into it, right, they're just, just wrecked and ruined in shells, and they throw them aside, and they grab the next batch, and they keep going. So this is, this is the environment that I'm working in. And as I'm there, um, the person, uh, a woman who's working across from me, her name is Ren, and she's from Brazil. And Ren was great. She was just so optimistic with life. She'd just gone out of school, right? But her story was pretty amazing. So she came from Brazil. She came from a single family, just her mother, and they had almost nothing to live on. But her mother had a dream that someday, right, if she could give her child the opportunity, that she would go to America. And Ren graduated top of her class. She got a full-ride scholarship to go, get, go to school, and then she got a full-ride scholarship to go get her MBA from an Ivy League school. And then she got the job at Amazon, and now she came walking into the doors going, everything that I had wanted and hoped for is finally here. And she was able to, she got more money than she'd ever had in her life. She's able to send back money to help, you know, with her family and friends back, back home. She was able to provide for them. This was everything that her family and her had desired for her entire life. And I get it. Because for me, like, when I had thought about being on the cover of Fortune magazine, I remember writing this in my journal, like, I'd always said that I wanted to be king. And someday I'll be king. And it was a hard moment for me the first time that in my journal when suddenly there was a new desire arising in my heart where it was that God didn't intend for me to be king, but a king builder. And one day, I'm at Amazon, and Ren is having a come apart. She's just having a breakdown. She's in the middle of the corporate office, just blah, just tears, snot, right? And, uh, you know, it's kind of that awkward moment, like we're all busy. I'm kicking over my water bottle. We're all busy, right? And you know you're in that awkward moment where you're trying to like, you look anywhere but the, the person having a moment, you know, and everybody's walking around like, well, we don't see this. Um, and I'm sitting there going, wow, what do, I, what do I do with this? And, I, and so finally I was like, uh, hey, Ren, there's a, um, we have a meeting in conference room B in five minutes. Do you want to clean yourself up? She's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she cleans up, and she goes in conference room B, and, and then I'm, I go in there and talk with her, and there's no meeting, right? And I was just like, hey, I just, I just want to check in and go, like, what's, what's going on? Are you all right? And she just proceeds to just pour out her heart, which was, I did everything I was supposed to do. I got everything that I set out to do, and I am absolutely, completely miserable. This feels so empty. And then she looked at me and she goes, what makes you different? And I asked a question to her, what I'm going to ask for you this morning. So I have an answer, but you're probably not going to like it. So before I tell you, are you at a crossroad? The question, are you at a crossroad, it's, it's something that BGI used throughout youth ministry whenever we were dealing with counseling with somebody. We'd always start by saying, before I go and speak to you scriptural truth, I want to know, are you at a crossroad? Because if you hear something true that is different than an fun unfundamental belief that you have believed your entire life to this point, and suddenly you have to shake that old belief and accept something new, are you in a place where you're willing to listen? It's a dangerous question to say yes to because you don't know what fundamental truth that you've been believing that's been broken your entire life. 
And maybe most of your life is built off of that lie. And it's a disruptive force to finally say, yes. But I think there's something powerful when you ask the question, are you at a crossroads? Because if somebody says yes, I think God takes you at your word. So right now, are you at a crossroad? If the Lord says something to you right now, and it's a truth, and you realize that there's a fundamental truth that you've been believing that's a lie, are you willing to listen to the Holy Spirit? Yes? I want to hear people say it verbally. God's going to take you at your word. <laughs> so that's exactly what Ren said. Because, by the way, everybody says yes to that question. Like, because right? you, you're like, are you ever in a place where you say, like, no? Like, you know, when you ask, are you at a crossroads? You're like, oh, I wasn't, but I know I should say yes. Um, and then I went, I don't know how to tell you this, Ren, but everything you've built your life on is a lie. And you can spend the next 40 years of your life pursuing the path that you set out to do. And it will never quench your thirst. And it will never satiate your hunger. You will feel as hungry at the end of your days as you do right now. The world is lied to you. She was like, that feels right. She's like, okay, but what's the truth? And then I shared my faith with her. I shared my faith that I believe, right, in a God who gives us purpose and meaning. That the suffering of the things that we experience in this world, right, they have a purpose and a meaning, right, because they're building us to something greater than this. God knows you. He has a design for you. And it was funny. Um, you know when you, like, because I knew Ren wasn't a believer. Like, she was totally not ready for that. Like, uh, you, know, you know that moment when you start sharing your faith and the other person's like, oh my gosh, how did I get caught here? Like, she like leans back, suddenly, you know, her arms cross, and she was like, you know, she says all the things that you say when you're like, want to get out of the situation, like, oh, I'm really glad that works for you. Um, and I went, I get it, I get it. I know it, it feels like foolishness. I know it sounds weird, it sounds different, but you asked the question and I told you. If you want to know more, just ask. We left. I figured that's going to be the end of that, that conversation. She didn't bring it up. Didn't really make eye contact with me for at least a week. Um, <laughs> but a couple of weeks went by, and then finally Ren came to me right in the middle of the workday, and she's like, I want to know more. I was like, conference room B. <laughs> <laughs> And, and, went, and I, just, I just started sharing with her scripture, right? And explaining to, like, what does it look like to be a person who follows? And she asked, what does it take? And she had no exposure to the Bible ever. And I, and I shared a few things, and then suddenly the Lord was on my heart. I was like, do you want to pray right now? And therefore, in the most godless corporate environment I could imagine, middle of downtown Seattle, Ren converted and became a follower of Christ in the middle of conference room B. And then she was like, well, how do, like, you talk about the fact that, you know, this truth that I've been living is a lie and that there's this real truth. Well, where'd I get that? And it was funny because at, at Amazon, we get copy of free books all the time come in, you know, just thousands of books come in. And that morning, a new, brand new Bible had come in. I was like, hey, one more Bible. And it was sitting at my desk. And she's like, how do I get started? And I was like, wait here. Um, run back and I go, here's your first Bible. And she's like, this, you know, Bible's an intimidating thing, right? When you haven't opened it before and you're like, where do I start? Right? And I don't know, you guys are probably better prepared for this question than I was because when somebody asked, where do you start? Like, I was like, oh man, you'd think I'd have a better answer than what I, I'm like, oh, where do you start? Uh, and I went, Matthew? <laughs> right? And here was my reasoning. It was the first book of the New Testament. <laughs> That was the best strategy I had. Now, later on, I would go back and go, what's the first book you should read when you're reading scripture? All right, and there's all these advices, you know, about different strategies and books to do, right? And then the gospels are a good choice. I'm like, okay, which is the first gospel? And they had, well, here's why Luke is the best or Mark is the best, right? Or um, John is the best. It, but they went, but not Matthew. Just don't, just, you know, not, just don't have them start Matthew. I was like, I blew it. Um, 
But uh, the verse that we're going to go into this morning, that we, that we, because um, we read a series of verses together, and one of them we did was from 1 Corinthians 2, which is the book we've been going through. So if you have your Bible, please pull it out. If you do not have one and you would like one, there are ones to borrow. Someone who is in more authority here than I will have a, a Bible if you need one, so raise your hand. But please open to 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 16. And this is what we read together. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him, these are the things God has revealed to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thought except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught, taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the, through, through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? but we have the mind of Christ. See, that day a new belief was offered to Ren. See, there's no, that there was no life to be found in earthly riches and human esteem. This contradicted every belief she had formed into that point in her life. But now realizing that God's wisdom did not align with man's wisdom, and thus put Ren in a state of cognitive dissonance. How many of you have heard the term cognitive dissonance before? All right, so it's, it's, it was uh, in 1937, there was a social scientist named Leon Fatzinger who coined the term cognitive dissonance, and it simply means this. It's the mental discomfort experienced by a person who simultaneously holds two or more contradictory beliefs. When you are walking around trying to believe two things and they both can't be true, you will be in a state of cognitive dissonance. And he found it actually affects you physically. So if you're in this place, so sometimes it might be because your actions say one thing, but your words say another. Or maybe you're trying to believe two things and you know they both can't be true, and you're trying to hold on to this, say that you'll have trouble sleeping. You might have trouble eating. It can give you dizziness, headaches, potentially migraines. Found all kinds of physical things happen because we are physically driven to resolve cognitive dissonance one way or another. At some point in your life, you will reject one and hold on to the other. And we won't be at peace or alignment until we do. We have a, I have a little cognitive dissonance test that we're going to run through here. It's a series of images. Can you mind this is for pros, you know, uh, <laughs> posterity, right? So wait. <laughs> so as you look, as you look, right, you know, just tell me how these pictures make you. How do they make you feel? First picture. Okay. Next picture. Oh. Try imagine eating with that fork or cutting with that knife, both about an inch thick. Um, next picture. <laughs> next. There you go. A his and her coffee mugs. Next. There you go. Pull a nice hot boiling pan of water off the stove with those handles. And finally, Yes. This always reminds me of, you know, what a bed looks like after there's like four rows of pillows at the end. You know, there's nowhere actually to lie down on the bed. <laughs> See, these induce cognitive dissonance because when you, when you look at these images and pictures, right, you know what they're supposed to be used for, but now suddenly they're put designed in such a way where it ceases to have its function as you know it. When you see two coffee cups and they're linked by the handles and they're filled with hot liquid, you're like, I know what a coffee mug is for. It's for drinking liquid. And you look at that and go, how am I supposed to drink liquid after that? I don't know what this thing is for now. I'm in a state of cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is one of the primary mechanisms that Jesus uses in Scripture in order to teach us. He will use phrase after phrase, sentence after sentence, Scripture after Scripture, that's designed to induce you in a state of cognitive dissonance because it's going to challenge the underlying fundamentals that you have never questioned in your life. Experiences that you've had in the world, things that have been passed down generation to generation, you don't ever even think about. You just accept that they're true in life. 
I'll give an example. If you, uh, how many people are parents here? Right? Almost every parent's going to have one moment in your life where you're adjudicating some sort of dispute in your house with your kids, right? And they come running up to you and they're like, no, they did this. No, they did this. And you're, and you're going to be like, stop. This is my judgment. This is how we move forward. And your kid says, that's not fair. <laughs> and tell me as a parent, what's your response? Your yeah, life's not fair, <laughs> right? Like, we just know, it's just intuitive. Like, you've been like, it's like, it's like you were waiting your entire life for that. You're like, I don't even know where that came from. Right? And your, your four-year-old just throws this, life's not fair. And you're like, life's not fair. You know, and they're like, you just blast that out of the park. You know, their mouth is agape just watching their words in the upper deck. You're slow walking around the bases. Like, you know, you're like, wow, I don't know where that came from, but that was in there, right? And it just feels so true, right? Right, because it's, it's a human wisdom that you're trying to pass down. What, what are you really saying? You're like, get used to disappointment, okay? Right? Because there were things I wanted in my life that wasn't this, all right? I had things I wanted in my life and in my marriage and in my kids, and, right? And this is not how things turned out. So life's not fair. So yeah, and they're like, geez, okay. Right? And then suddenly you're reading scripture and you're like, and then suddenly you, you learn about a God and you start going, wait a second. Can I really believe that life is not fair and still think that the creator of life is? Just because something feels right doesn't mean it is. Cognitive dissonance. Scripture will do that to us. Here are a few examples of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek don't inherit the earth, right? It's the powerful, it's the bold. You take what you want. It doesn't match with my understanding of how the world works. How about Matthew 20, 16? So the last will be first and the first will be last. All right? And now you're just saying opposites, Jesus. Come on. Like cognitive dissonance. Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Cognitive dissonance. The Messiah is not coming to look how we expected the Messiah to look. He was supposed to be a king who came at the front of an army, not in the form that he did. It almost feels like every conclusion that I come up to and based on human wisdom, based on my experience with the world, is exactly 100% wrong. In Luke 17, 33, and this is one we're going to explore more this morning, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. Cognitive dissonance. How do we separate human wisdom from scriptural truth? How do we resolve cognitive dissonance? Well, Jesus tells us in John 8, 31, and I love this verse. It's one of the most powerful, profound verses in Scripture. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's just, let's, let's double-click on that, shall we? Using a modern term. If you hold to my teaching. The word hold, the root form of that word in Greek comes from, it means to abide in to endure, to survive, to remain, to not surrender. Right? This isn't just a casual, like, hold, lightly take. This is, imagine, just like a gripping onto. There's a philosophical phrase that means that there are truths and there are bloody truths. And what that means, a bloody truth is something that's been battle-tested. It means that there was a point in your life where you were brought down to your very core and you had to decide what is it that you really believe, who are you really at, and you went, man, there was this one truth that I had in scripture, and man, if I didn't cling on to that scripture for, with everything that I had, I don't know that I would have made it through. If you hold onto my teaching. Someone who has that kind of relationship with the truth, good luck yanking it away from them. It says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. And the word really, it means the most assured truth, the thing that you can count on, bank on, right? That will be true and will always be true. It means really. If you hold to my teaching, you will really, my disciples, disciples, you follow me. Then, you mind the word then, means that what happens after that 
only happens if the first thing is true. Then you will know the truth. That makes sense, right? You don't really know the truth unless, you've, unless it's been battle tested. You don't know what you believe, right, until you've gone through suffering and through trials, right? You may, it may have been the easy thing to believe, but the first time you went through something difficult, you cast that aside and grabbed onto the next, you know, the next belief that you could get. It says, then you will know, and the word know, it's, a, it's an expression in Greek that's like no between like a man and wife. It's an intimate knowing. It's like a relationship. Like you will know the truth. You'll know the truth like you know your best friend. And the truth will set you free. Wow. Free from what? What is the truth protecting us from? What kind of life does being a disciple of Christ offer that is different than the life offered by the world? I wrote this down, and I feel like this is the one sentence, if I tried to boil up what is the life offered by world, what is it that I was seeking, what is it that Ren was seeking, what is it that I think that most of our, like, our society, our culture seeks, and this is this, the purpose in life is to accomplish only one thing, to minimize suffering, maximize comfort. See, if I can just make it through this existence with the least amount of suffering, most amount of comforts, that's about the most I can hope for. Makes sense, right? All human wisdom kind of makes sense, right, at its core. <laughs> right, because there's something we know, so you go suffering, suffering equals bad, right? Comfort equals good, right? Pretty simple. So how's it working out for the world? There's a, a poll that's offered, that's given every year throughout Europe and throughout the United States. It's a very simple poll and it asks a question. It just says, all things considered, do you think the world is getting better or worse? Right. Almost everybody says worse, right? It's almost unanimously. In Europe, 90% of the people say it's getting worse. In America, it's 94% say worse. That extends across political divides, right? against geographical divides, religious divides. In fact, the only thing we can really bring us together is that we all agree that it's getting worse. <laughs> and yet, if our mission in life is to minimize suffering and maximize comfort, is it really getting worse? Take a look at these statistics from the last 200 years. Keep in mind, 200 years in the history of humanity is like a second, right? It's a blip. Last 200 years. So 200 years ago, 90% of the world lived in extreme poverty. It means nine out of 10 people did not have access to home, food, or water on a daily basis. 200 years later, it's 10%. Gone from nine in 10 to one in 10. Pretty good. 200 years ago, 88% of the world was illiterate. They could not read or write. They did not have access to education, schooling. It's down to 15%. 200 years ago, 42% of children died before the age of five. Imagine that, four in 10 didn't make it to five. Across the entire globe, it's under 4% now. In the last 200 years, Longevity, skyrocketing. Standard of living, standard of living, skyrocketing. Access to education, skyrocketing. You'd think that between 200 years ago today, the entire human race, the species, we should be walking around high-fiving each other, right? Guys, I know there's some more work to do, but wow, look at this. We've done it. Like, look at this, you know? Thousands and thousands of years of human history in the last 200 years, like, literally, we're, we're killing it. Yet 94% say the world's getting worse. Cognitive dissonance. And over the same period of time, we've seen suicide rates grow to their highest rate in recorded history. It's three times higher than it's ever been. We see the highest rates ever for depression, anxiety, and Western society birth rates at their all-time low. You know, throughout Europe, for every two people, they're creating 1.2 kids. Yeah, 
Well, it's an average. <laughs> Their second kid's smaller. Um, um, <laughs> in Russia, it's one. Okay, that's easier. <laughs> so every two people are creating one kid in Russia right now. Their society is supposed to shrink by 40 million people in one generation. They've just, life is so bad, there's so little hope, then why even, be, why even bother reproducing? If life is getting comfortable, if life is getting more comfortable, why are we less fulfilled? I think one of the most depressing, one of the worst moments for someone, and in parentheses, best moments, is when you give somebody who's going down the wrong path to life everything that they ask for and nothing that they want. Because suddenly that will force them in a state of cognitive dissonance. We say that we want a life without suffering, but let me tell you this. If any of you, single one of you, I asked you who you are, what would your answer be? Maybe your first answer might be what your job is, you know, like what I did, but I go, no, 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 not Tell me who you really are. Why do you believe what you believe? You're going to tell me about the things in your life where you had to overcome adversity. You're going to say, this is the type of childhood I grew up in, the broken home. This was a huge thing I had to overcome, a sickness in my family, maybe a death, maybe worse. Right? You're, going to, you're going to have things in your life that you're like unimaginable suffering that you went through. But you're going to use those examples because you're going to tell me, this is what I learned about myself. This is what I learned about God, and this is how I learned about how he feels about me because of that. You ever thought about the fact that the only reason you know who you are is because you've suffered? In Isaiah 48.10, God says, I have refined you, but not as silver is refined. Rather, I have refined you in the furnace of suffering. God does not view suffering as something to be avoided. He, used, he sees it as a necessary tool to shake you from a lie that is going to kill you. There is no life to be found in what this world offers. And how loving would God be if he allowed you to not suffer and then die because of it? In Romans 5, it says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop an endurance. And endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation, and this hope will not lead to disappointment. I think what Ren feared, what I feared, I think most of us fear, is suffering that is meaningless. What we really want to know is that, is the suffering I'm going through, is it going to produce something good? And that is the hope we're offered here. That's what separates us from the rest of the world. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he was um, a citizen within Russia, and he, he lived under the time of Stalin, and he was a soldier at the time, and he wrote back a letter to a friend, and he made some sort of casual joke about Stalin in his letter. Not a good thing to do. Um, <laughs> because he got turned in, and when he showed up back at his house, right, a bunch of soldiers, soldiers came and took him to the gulag. And he was a little confused about why he was going over such a little comment, and he would spend decades of his life, right, stuck in the gulag with nothing, where they tried to work him to death. And the only thing that kept him alive was hearing the stories of his friends and comrades. And he was a journalist, and he had no access to paper, but he committed to memory, right, their stories, so that the day that he could be released, he could write it so that everybody could know. He would, really, he would produce a set of books this thick from the stories he had committed to memory over the two decades he'd spent in the gulag. And as his experience further drove him into the arms of Christ, this is a quote he would make in the end of his life. Bless you, prison. Bless you for being in my life. For there, lying upon the rotting prison straw, I came to realize that the object of life is not prosperity as we are made to believe, but the maturity of the human soul. There is a life that goes much deeper than what this world offers. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus tells us exactly why he came. So much of scripture, right, is Jesus telling scriptures, or he has parables and stories, right, and, and uh, riddles. You know, and the disciples are always confused, like, ah, can you just explain this to me really clearly because I'm so confused on what you mean. But in John 10.10, 10, he just flat out says why he came. He says, I came that they may have life and that they may have it abundant. So if life is not an absence of suffering, 
and it's not a, an abundance of comfort, what is this life, an abundant life, that Jesus offers? And I think to find out, we need to look at the root of what the word life means in Scripture. Because one of the things we find out when we're translating from Greek to English, right, is that English, a lot of times, we, we take multiple Greek words and we, we lump it into one English word. So we lose something a little bit in the translation. One of those that we lose in translation is the word life. Because in Greek, there's three major forms of Greek that they use for life. Bios, psyche, and zoe. And I'm going to go through those three. Because the question that Jesus is asking once again in Luke 17, 33 is, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. The greatest cognitive dissonance, it's almost like everything in Scripture is boiling up to this moment, that the only way to life is through death. Is there anything that could produce more cognitive dissonance than that? The first word for life is bios, and it's the root for biology. It means how you defend for your physical self. So your money that you set aside because you're like, well, I want, you know, for shelter and for food, it's for my bios. Anybody who might do any physical harm to me, that's my bios that I want to care for. Uh, bios is the word that um, Jesus would use when the woman who would give of her last two coins, right, she was, they were taking a collection, she was giving the last, he would say, she has given the last two coins of what she, she has to live on. And the word live there comes from bios. And I find that very interesting because why did Jesus allow her to give? If the point of giving is so that those with much can give to those with few, well, she has her last two coins. Wouldn't, shouldn't she just be a receiver and not a giver at that point? But yet somehow Jesus steps in and he doesn't stop her. It's almost as if there is more to giving than just receiving. I was reading, you know, sometime about how they would do like the old sacrifices in the Old Testament and how so much of giving the best of your flock and the best cuts of meat and then they would burn it completely to ash so that no one could eat from it. And I was thinking about this morning as we're passing around the buckets for our tithe, how would you feel if after service we went, hey, thanks for everyone getting, we have a burn barrel in back, we'd love everyone to come out, All right, we're going to take 80% of what you gave and we're going to light it on fire. We're just going to sit around and watch it turn to ash. Let me ask you a question. Would you feel more inclined or less inclined to give your money next week? <laughs> right? You might go, whoa, there's a lot of really good things we could have done with that money. And, you know, if you're just going to burn my cash, well, then maybe I'll just hold on to it because I'm not giving it. Maybe God knows something about this that's better than our understanding. And maybe he goes, the primary reason why I need you to give is because I'm trying to save your life. And right now, that bios, that thing that you hold aside for yourself, it's entangled you so much that you think that that's giving you life, but that's protecting you when it's not. It would be better for you to give it and burn it into nothing than it would be to hold on to one more second. So I need you to symbolically every week just go, here's of my time, here's of my food, here's of my money, God, and I give you the best of it because I'm constantly having to remind my physical self that I do not find life in my bios. And 1 John says, do not love the world or anything in it. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, bios, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Second word, psyche, for life. It's the root of psychology. It's your mind. This is a powerful one, at least it is for me. Your psyche, that form of life, it represents your power, respect, how other people see you, your image, relationships. It, that our psyche is what our drives, our need to be seen by others, to be recognized, appreciated for what we do, our need to follow our personal dreams, hold up our self-actualization above everything else, how powerful is this, right? You'll see people who will walk away from church, right, because they weren't appreciated. Their psyche wasn't fulfilled. You'll see people who walk away from God to see their personal desires fulfilled because how they are seen by the world ultimately drives them most 
In John 12, 25, this is what it says about psyche. Anyone who loves their life, psyche, will lose it. While anyone who hates their life, psyche, in this world, will keep it for eternal life. And the last life is zoe, which we'll get into in just a second. You ever thought about that? Yeah, in fact, you have to hate your psyche. I totally get that. How many of you are in a situation where you're like, you know, like, I know these people don't believe right now, and if I share what I really think and what I believe, the truth about Scripture, I know that this could affect relationship. They're going to look at me weird. Like, I just want to fit in, and I don't like the fact that the world hates me just because I follow Christ. And yet Scripture tells us you're fooling yourself if you ever thought that was an option. How many are still trying to thread the needle, right, and going, yeah, I can follow Christ and also not have the world hate me, right? There's got to be this perfect blend where if I just read Scripture just the right way and I share it in just the right moments, that somehow, like, I can be embraced by the world and also still follow Christ. And Christ says, nope. If you follow me, they will hate you. If you love your psyche that much, you're going to lose it says you have to hate it. You have to be in this like battle against your own psyche of going, I know that I'm, this image matters to me, what other people think of me. I seriously, I just have to just hate it and let it down and let it die. I have to die to my psyche so that I might know zoe. And that's the third form of life. And zoe means full, overflowing, complete, and lacking nothing. In John 6.35, Jesus says this about Zoe. I am the bread of life, Zoe. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is offering a, a life, a Zoe. He goes, it is greater than bios and it's greater than psyche. And I'm telling you right now, if you don't let those parts of you die, you'll never really get to experience real life. In 1 John, do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life, to Zoe, because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. How many of us, even though we know Zoe and we're followers of Christ, still find ourselves entangled in our bios and psyche, desperately looking back to those things as if they were going to save us, protect us? There was a time... I didn't realize at the height of my ministry a few years later about how difficult life would get. I don't know how many of you have spent done ministry, but sometimes when you get fully engaged in ministry, your family starts to suffer. And the enemy finds ways to attack your relationship with your spouse, relationship between you and your kids. And you're finding all of this life, these good things from doing ministry, of investing in other people. And I remember it suddenly got to a height after about six years of doing this, where we were like, we were struggling, Beth and I in our marriage. And we kept going, well, we've got to fix this along the way, but I can't stop doing this other thing. And then we started having some issues with our kids coming up in the relationship with it. And I just felt completely defeated because I had no idea what to do. And I didn't know how to go back to BJ, who was, who was no longer um, youth pastor, but was now senior pastor of our church, and say, I don't know what to do except to step down from being an elder from doing ministry and just focus on my relationship with my wife and my kids. And I didn't know how that would make me look, my psyche, to the world, having to do that. And, um, and even though I did it, and I think it was the right decision, it took me a long time to not be resentful for having to do it. Resentful to my wife, resentful maybe a little to my kids, especially resentful to God. I was kind of in the height of kind of this, this dark place of feeling this resentment. And where did I go? I went back to corporate America. Because I'm really good at it. And that got complicated. But I know how to do this. I could still be king of this. And um, getting back in the rhythm, things are going well. Life is simpler. And um, BJ calls me up and he's like, hey, can we do lunch? And we got to lunch and he said, hey, Seth, 
Can I share you, with you a reality of your circumstance? Are you at a crossroads? Like, how dare you? <laughs> and I did something that nobody I'd ever asked had ever done. I said no. It was an important question for him to ask me because I had no idea that I was at no until the words came out of my mouth. And so he was like, not expecting that. So, but he respected it. He left, and I just, I was, I was pretty wrecked by that. I was realizing, no, God, I'm not really interested in what you have to say right now. I'm not really interested in what you have to show to my friends, those who love me about the reality of my circumstance, because right now I'm a little bitter. Cognitive, difficult, cognitive dissonance is difficult for us to stand, understand, and few go through the rigor necessary to understand the offer, and even fewer choose it. In Matthew 7, Scripture reads, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. This is the way, and only a few find it. This life, this is the way, it is the hardest to find, and the gate is small. And Jesus tells us this in 14.6. What is the pathway through that gate? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Zoe. No one comes to the Father except through me. I think one of the most beautiful moments in Scripture, the last one. I've always admired the Peter that you read in Acts, and you see the difference between that Peter and the book of Acts versus the Peter talked about in Scripture in the Gospels. You're like, how does he transition from being this zealous but up and down, somewhat immature, like, but like, but from that to being the rock that Jesus predicted that he would build his church on. And there's a specific moment that just really speaks, speaks to me. And it was after the moment where Peter had denied Jesus three times. Because in his zealousness, right, when Jesus is telling him that the end is coming, right, of course, what does he say? He's like, yeah, Jesus, look, the world is going to reject you. But you know what? I'm your friend to the very end. I will be with you to the very end. for him to have to endure the suffering of knowing that he had let his best friend down. He denied him. What, what did Peter do? Felt lost. He went back to the thing he knew he was good at. Picked his nets back up. The very things that Jesus had told him, set these down and follow me. He went back to them because he's good at that. And they had that experience of seeing Jesus again alive. And he has that elation moment along with the other disciples. Oh my gosh, Jesus is back. And they, they, they describe this beautiful moment because they have breakfast together. And I just, I can picture Peter afterwards kind of sitting off by himself, still just stuck in his head about, Jesus, I don't know if you know what I did, but I'm in a rough spot. And Jesus does the most beautiful thing. In 2115, after breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? You know, Scripture never says what the these is. But I've, I've written, you know, some of the biblical scholars, I think that the answer is the need, these are the nets lying around his feet. These nets, they represent your bios. They're your psyche. That's not the life I had for you. You're my rock. And I think God loves us enough that sometimes when we fall off, from our path, we go back to the things of this world. He doesn't abandon us to it. About two weeks after I'd said no to BJ, I got a text. It was from Ren. I hadn't heard from Ren since she left Amazon. I only knew her a few months. She worked at Amazon for like six months and left. Remember the last thing she told me? She's like, I'm going to have to go back and I'm, she's engaged to some guy across the country. He's not a believer. She's like, how am I going to tell him that I'm a follower of Christ? I'm like, good luck with that. Um, 
So I'd never heard how that story ended. And she, uh, she texted me years later. It just happened to be two weeks after my conversation with BJ. And she said this. I just want to give you an update on my life, Seth. Topher, my fiance, we're married now. He's a follower of Christ. Our first daughter, she was born a couple years ago. We named her after the Brazilian word for light. Because we want our family to follow Jesus. My son, he was born two days ago. We named him Matthew. Sometimes God needs to remind us who we really are, who we are to him. I'm going to just end with this prayer for us. Lord, I know you, I feel like you're reminding me right now. And I just pray for that for everyone here. If there are places in our life where we have willingly become entangled once again with the things of this world, things that we were hoping would bring us back life, our bios, maybe worried about our image and how other people would think about us, feel about us. God, would you just let that part of our life die once and for all? I thank you that you just always pursue us. You are relentless. And no matter how far we run from you, no matter how many years we've been doing it, if we stop and we turn, you are always right there, anxiously waiting for us to look. You are always faithful, God. Thank you again for joining us online. We hope you enjoyed the message. To connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. For more information about who we are, check out seacoastvineyard.com. We would love to hear from you, so make sure you leave us a review or drop us a message. Until next time, have a great day.